0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over and Abraham Verghese. Everyone has read Cutting for Stone. There is not a single person who has not read his earlier novel, Cutting for Stone. Wait until we get into it about the covenant of water, but this is also where I'm going to say... You know, he's also written a couple of really great nonfiction books, and if you haven't read them, you should go back and read those too. My Own Country came out in 1994, and The Tennis Partner came out in 1998, and we are going to go back there a little bit. But I do want to start with The Covenant of Water. This book is beautiful. It's as long as it needs to be, and that's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) It's beautiful, though, and it starts with a story that your
1: mom gave you. Indeed. Uh, first of all, it's just great to be with you. Um, yeah, my mom, you know, was the inspiration for setting this story in Kerala. You know, I, I set the first novel I wrote in Ethiopia because I felt I knew it well. And although I knew Kerala pretty well, I was, you know, I didn't grow up there. I knew it from summer vacations and medical school. And my mom left us this a uh, 100-page document that she had handwritten for my five-year-old niece when my niece asked her, Amishi, what was it like when you grew up as a little girl, and my my mom was so taken with that question that she handwrote this and illustrated it. And when I picked it up, it just reminded me of the richness of of her life. And I knew those stories well, but it just reminded me that this was a great place to to be setting a novel, and that I should go on with it. And mom was, of course, very very excited by that. <laughs>
0: is not necessarily as well-known maybe as Mumbai or Delhi. Can you just set it up in present-day terms sort of what the history of Kerala is and and where in India it is?
1: Yeah, Kerala is at the southern tip of India on the west coast, sort of facing uh, the Gulf, if you like. And that's significant because uh, there's been a long history of a spice trade back and forth between Arabia and this area of India where spices are grown. In fact, we believe that that's when Saint Thomas the Apostle landed in India in fifty two A.D. And my community traces its Christianity to that to that uh, time. So Kerala is also walled off from the rest of India by this long mountain range called the Western Ghats, and therefore has been spared the invasions and sometimes the political upheavals that uh, take place elsewhere. It's a very very lush tropical sort of climate. uh, I often tell people, well, think of Hawaii sort of like that. 44 rivers running to the ocean, miles and miles of backwaters and lagoons. And so, you know, water is the natural metaphor that comes to mind when you think of people from Kerala, because there's something very fluid about their gestures and their animation that, to me, has something to do with the water.
0: But you've also given us a family where, in every generation, someone dies because they've fallen into water.
1: Yeah, I I thought that was a interesting sort of problem to set up. Uh, as As a physician, I'm fascinated by rare conditions, and there is this one genetic entity where you know, in every generation going back several, people have drowned accidentally when they shouldn't have drowned. That's always stuck in the back of my mind and. As I set out this novel and began to sort of feel how big a role water played in it, it just organically became something to sort of incorporate into the novel. In every generation, someone dies from drowning, and uh, that's, that's a profound burden for a family to carry, a secret.
0: But also your sense of home, and I know you just said Kerala is where you spent summers and it's not where you grew up, but at the same time... And I've only ever been to Delhi and Lucknow and Uttar Pradesh. I've never been to Southern India, and I would love to go sometime. But I felt very settled in the world that you're creating for us. And, you know, I've said this on other shows too, but world building should not be limited ever to just science fiction and fantasy. Every single novel has to build a world. And you're covering 70 years and three generations in a part of the world that I don't know particularly well, but you get into this story, and you've got this great line early on where you're just like, well, if you tell the story well, people will know and what you're doing and how you're doing it, and they will live it alongside you. I'm paraphrasing you poorly, but that's essentially what you say. And I really did feel that while I was reading. So we know you've got your mother's story. We know you've got summers in Kerala, but when did you start writing this book? Because it's 2023, and Cutting for Stone came out 14 years ago, and it's a kind of a big gap.
1: It is a gap, I think, by, by most writers' standards. Uh, but I must confess, I'm, I have a day job that keeps me pretty busy. I also wasn't in a hurry right after the last book to immediately embark on another one. So I think it took me two or three years to really get into... Writing the new novel, and then it took longer than it should. I, th- I think, unfortunately, I'm the sort of writer who wishes they knew the entire story before they <laughs> started. And I'm so envious of people who seem capable of doing that. And so I, I have to sort of discover the story. In fact, I have on this whiteboard next to me an elaborate blueprint of what the novel was meant to be. And then, you know, a couple of months into the writing, I would wind up wind up going onto these. Tangents that I was led to by the characters. I think there's a, a maxim in writing that character is determined by decisions made under pressure. And so the character would come to a branch point and make a decision based on something that was happening to them. And I couldn't really argue with that. And so the blueprint would have to be wiped clean and I'd start again. So I think I had I'm an inefficient novelist in that sense. But I'm not alone. I think there are many novelists I admire who I sense. Of that style.
0: It seems to me, too, that as much as you put your characters under quite a lot of pressure, you do quite like them a lot. You like all of them. There were a couple of hours like, I understand why you're here, but you are trying my patience. And one of them might have been a doctor who we will get to, but you know who I'm referring to. And I understand his role in the story and everything else, but boy, I wanted to pop him in the nose.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there. It's interesting, you should say that. My biggest struggle was with the middle character in the generation, Philippus, you know and I, and ironically I kind of identify with him because he tries to be well-meaning and he tries to do things for the right reasons or so he thinks, but he inevitably winds up getting into messes and doing the the, the wrong thing, uh, but he thinks he's doing it for the right reason. It was a real struggle to make him likable, because I didn't want the reader to, to dislike really any of the characters. I mean, even, a, even your villain has to, be, has to have a quality that at least is identifiable, if not likable.
0: Let's go back to Philippos' mom for a second, Big Amachi. Yeah. We meet her when she's a child. I mean, she's 12, and it's the turn of the 21st century. So she's being married to a much older man. And he sort of looks at her and says, oh, no, this is not good. They go home, and she lives her life until she's an adult, essentially, even though she's married to this man. And Part of me was surprised by the way the book opened. But both of these characters are so smart and so genuine. And I'm wondering if it's sort of, as you said earlier, you were saying you felt your way through the book and you don't always know quite where you're going. But did they show up first?
1: Yeah, they showed up first, and that probably is the best uh, this part of the story that I did know best. I kind of liked playing against the grain because I think, you know, your instinct when you hear of a twelve-year-old being married is to think this is abysmal. This is, you know, this this does not portend well. But the truth is, in in the era that I'm talking about, 1900. It was not uncommon for an eleven-year-old to be married to an eleven-year-old boy in another household and she'd just become one of the one of the you know children in the household. In fact, I was visiting a, a family member recently and she was going through some photo albums and she says, You see this girl? I'm pointing to an older woman, and she said, When she was a little girl, she went to her mother-in-law, who she adored, and said, That boy is really annoying me. Can we get rid of him? And she was talking about her husband, you know, the son of this woman. So there was a certain innocence to this. Uh, nobody expected them to, you know, to consummate the marriage, and you know, that was all watched over pretty carefully. But that particular story of a twelve-year-old marrying an older widower is the actual story of my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother married an old widower who already had three or four children, but uh, they went on to have the most wonderful marriage, and she bore. More children, and you know she obviously outlived him. Everybody who talked about that marriage from my mother to my aunts to my grandmother just were reverential and i I, I love the idea of playing against the grain a little bit by by you know going against readers' expectations. We talked about you know conflict and putting characters under pressure. I also loved the idea of you know just describing their ritual of everyday life without necessarily. Introducing Conflict, because whenever I visited my grandparents, I, I was struck by that, by the richness of the ordinary, by the by the sort of grace and uh, spirituality almost of the way they lived these repetitive lives, but put, put such care into the little things they did, you know, whether it was stoking the fire or Making the rice the same way they'd made it the previous day. But, you know, every time the stakes were the same, you know.
0: But also the building of this community. I mean, Big Amachi's husband is giving pieces of land to people who might not otherwise have it. Some of them are family, some of them are friends, but he's really building a community. And watching this unfold in the first piece of the book really does set the ground. And it gives you a better idea of the stakes. I mean, we're watching a community go from rather rural and limited in some ways to really kind of bustling and a step away from Madras.
1: Yeah, I think I love that sense of the sweep of time, you know, because in that era, 1900 to 1970, we've had two world wars, but within India, you also have this incredible moment of liberation coming from you know centuries of colonial rule but within Kerala there was increasingly the formation of villages from what had been isolated you know dwellings with land around them and I, I just love that sense of the slow evolution of a community and you're watching it happen under your, under your eyes so to speak.
0: And in some ways though, Kerala is sort of held aside from colonialism and the in the really deep impact of colonialism, we do meet a character called Digby, who's a Scotsman by birth who ends up in Madras and I'm not going to spoil all of the way <laughs> There's a lot that we're going to dance around because this is this is a book you should enjoy yourself and not have spoiled for you on a podcast but Digby ends up in Madras and his boss is <clears throat> the one I would like to bop on the nose but I want to talk about Digby and colonialism for a second because Colonialism is such a big piece of India's story. And part of me is like, well, of course, we have to talk about colonialism because it's such a big piece of India's story. And part of me is just like, oh, can't we just keep these people out of it and just tell India's story for India? I mean, you cover partition very carefully at one point in this book,
1: but how do you feel about that? Well, I think colonialism is sort of inescapable. You know, I think uh, you think of my parents' era when they, where in cities like Madras and Bombay, the, the British were everywhere. And their professors were often British when they went to college. And so uh, in my era, uh, we still had a few British professors who chose to stay after independence. But you certainly had all the vestiges of the buildings and everything they left behind, which they like to think they enriched us with. But, you know, the true narrative is that every single railroad and every structure they built was with the intention of taking the goods that they were robbing the country of to the ports to ship back to England. So it's really Britain that got modernized, or the UK, and not India. It was modernized on the backs of India. But that said, you know, here we are, I'm speaking to you in the language of the colonizers. I'm the paradox of the fact that I think in English, and so do many, you know, Indian writers. We are where we are, uh, but I think we can have different interpretations of how good or bad colonialism was. There's nothing that can apologize for it, but I think you can't shun it. You can't run away from it when you take on a novel in that period. It's it's relevant. Less relevant, perhaps, than if you were in Bombay or elsewhere than you were than in Kerala, but still relevant.
0: And Digby's in exile, and Big Amachi, before she really settles down, she's in exile. Her mother is far away, and... This is not where she's from. You're writing about exile again, even when people think they're home. And Philippos at one point leaves his home and he realizes he does not like this. He absolutely does not like a minute of it and and never wants to leave again. And that creates all sorts of complications that we will leave readers to discover. But exile is still something that it seems like Either you really like to write about, or you just don't want to let go of writing
1: about yet. That's a you know telling observation because I really have never had a home that I can call home. So I suppose I'm always envious of people who have hometowns and reunions to go to and the rituals of Friday night football and possum pie or whatever your ritual happens to be. But conversely, I think I, I, what I admired about my grandmother, or not admired, but, you know, noticed about my grandparents was that my grandmother came to that house when she was 15 or younger, the house into which she married. And she was really saying goodbye to her family forever. I mean, she might get to see them now and then, but this was the house where her life was going to be played out and transport was not easy. And so I had the experience when I was, I think, 16 of Taking a bus ride with my grandmother to the big city of Trivandrum, she'd never been to a big city. She'd never been more than a twenty-mile radius from the house we were in, and to sort of watch her face and ever look out the window at, you know, buildings, and and it was clear that it was a bit unsettling to her. And after my grandfather died, her daughter was preparing to move her to that city. And my grandmother passed away within a few weeks of the impending move. And uh, I think the move would have killed her. And in a way, it was sort of fortuitous that she, her life, came to its end in the place that she had, the only place she really could have called home. And that was where she was married to.
0: You know, it's not quite the equivalent, but we do have a generation of people in the world now who've grown up sort of native to social media. They've grown up living on apps and online in ways that the rest of them, like, I remember fighting with my little brother over who was going to get to use the phone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now you don't have to do that. But all of that kind of living virtually in a way that sort of keeps you untethered in a lot of ways, but also tethers you to members of your community that may be scattered around. So it's a very weird space.
1: It is a very weird space. I mean, I am glad that we are connected because I can actually be chatting with people in India with you, for example, but also with people in different time zones. So it's wonderful. But uh, you know, clearly there's a something beautiful and nostalgic about the past that I'm describing, even though we wouldn't necessarily want to have all that back. There's something beautiful about it to admire and to to celebrate.
0: Well, and home is a complicated idea. I mean, home isn't just a place. I sort of define home as wherever I might be in the moment and I find my space and my bearings and not everyone can do that. And your characters, when they find home, it seems like it's such a struggle
1: that they don't want to let it go.
0: <laughs> they do not want to let that idea
2: go ever.
1: <laughs> that might be a bit of my projection, I think. As
2: okay.
1: I, 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 on the other hand, I think that, you know, not having had a place to really call home Lived in three different continents. And within America, having lived, you know, in four or five different cities or six or seven different cities, it gives you a perspective that's not harmful for a writer. You're always the perennial outsider looking in. And one of the best compliments I ever received for my own country or the tennis partner were people from Tennessee or El Paso, Texas saying to me, We've lived here all our lives, and we've we never saw this thing that you So we were just blind to it. It was right there, but, you know, we took it for granted. And so it has some advantages, but I I still feel I would give a lot to belong, you know, and have generations in that one spot.
0: For you, I mean, did you find your own sense of home while you were writing The Covenant of Water? Did that become the experience of writing? Is that how you manifested home,
1: in a way? Yeah, I think that's very insightful. I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but it definitely felt... Very connected to my root, a way that I wasn't before. Much more appreciative of the rituals of faith and the rituals of, you know, all the rituals. Uh, the rituals of the kitchen. So in a way, I was embracing the sort of thing that when I was young I had rejected. So my my brother and I, growing up, were taken to the church, and we had enough teachers from that small community in Ethiopia that we had our own church and. So we had these two and a half hour services, which when you're a four-year-old child, just standing there (laughs) in a language which is Syriac, you know, which is ancient language that neither my parents nor anyone but the priest understood, it just seems so cruel. And so this book allowed me to sort of finally appreciate that in a different sort of way. I had a strange experience recently of going to one of our church services in that language And just feeling like chills because all the phrases, even though they remained opaque, were extremely familiar. And, uh, you know, you just sort of begin to accept, well, this is who we are. Communities need their rituals of of faith and of belonging. And I suppose that's what the book was a lot about, about faith and about belonging.
0: And I think there are not necessarily a huge number of readers who know that there is actually a Christian population. In India, I think people think, you know, Hindu and Muslim first.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And the Christian population is very, very small, but very, very old, if I'm right.
1: Yes, I mean, it's small by Indian standards. I think the only novel that uh, is well-known is The Wonderful God of Small Things by Aaron D. Roy. That's in the very same community. Mind you, there are many other writers writing about that community, but uh, I find that when I Use that example, people immediately know what area I'm talking about, you know, that that has echoes.
0: But you've always said that medicine was your first great love, and you still practice. You're a professor at Stanford, which I love the idea that you're still teaching doctors how to be doctors, because, I mean, we are standing in this very strange space. And you've even said this in op-eds, where technology turns doctors into clerks, which is not what you're meant to do. I'm wondering what the intersection of medicine and practicing medicine and teaching medicine and fiction is, because, I mean, you aren't honestly the only doctor who's also written books, but you have a really expansive worldview that shows up quite a lot in your fiction related to medicine.
1: Yeah, I mean, I must say, I always resist the notion of, you know, having two separate hats, you know, the fictional hat and then the The doctor had to me. um, I I feel like I'm all physician. That was my first love, and that is the identity that I embrace. And I'm bringing that same lens that I have in the at work in the hospital. It's the same lens I bring to whatever else I'm doing and trying to write. And so I don't see them as radically different, but clearly they do influence each other. I think that um, my passion within medicine has always been for the patient experience. So. Know, dissecting out their stories and making sure that we are reading their body as a text for the obvious things before sending them off to be exposed to contrast and radiation and when the answer might be written on their body and has been something that physicians recognized you know even a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. so we're clearly in great jeopardy of losing our our skills as technology becomes more and more sophisticated you would think it would make us even better at the bedside but the opposite has happened but anyway i think i bring that sensibility to both medicine and to writing the sense of paying attention to what's in front of me and the you know the skill that we're trained in to try and take disparate facts and tie them together into one whole one explanation apply occam's razor i see a lot of those parallels in uh in both both crafts, and sometimes I find myself sorting things out in the writing that that I didn't really understand till I began to write. You know, that was especially true in the nonfiction writing about HIV. Even in the novel, I think I, I was I began to understand more about things like leprosy and you know uh-huh. like childhood illnesses that I think came through the act of writing, which I think is a very different act than just thinking about something.
0: I think, too, the compassion you have for your characters seems like something that's just sort of hardwired into you as a human being, and that you would just need to have a great
1: deal of compassion because you're also seeing people at their most vulnerable. Yeah, I think we are, we're seeing people at their most vulnerable. And I don't think you can be a good physician if you're not, you know, sort of deeply curious about your fellow human beings. Uh, it's not enough to be, I think, just empathetic. You have to have this sense of curiosity and wonder about them. And, you know, that leads you to a deeper relationship than if you're just empathetic, whatever that signifies. So I think I've always had that sense of curiosity. In fact, I I, I, I never thought that I was a very good student. I never thought I was cut out for medicine, but I often talk about off-human bondage as being the book that brought me to medicine. You know, there's one scene where, the character Philip, who tries to be an artist and fails and finally comes back to London and pursues medical school. And he arrives on the wards finally after two years of basic sciences. And and, and there's a line there, like, Philip saw humanity there in the rough, the artist's canvas. And he thought to himself, this is something I can do. This is something I could be good at. And boy, those lines really spoke to me, and I, I, just, I just thought, you know, this, this means that you don't have to, not everybody can be a brilliant artist or mathematician, but anybody with an innate curiosity about the human condition, about their fellow human beings, that's what that line suggested. Anybody with that could work hard and be a pretty good physician, and uh, that gave me faith.
0: Some people might not know that in 1991, you left medicine temporarily to go to the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And I love that piece of your story, and I've always loved that piece of your story. But how long had you been practicing medicine at that point
1: when you decided to go study writing? I had finished residency, finished my fellowship, and was, you know, five years into practicing in small town Tennessee in New Medical School. And really, I had no ambition to be a writer, um, but I was living through this extraordinary story in this small town which was expected to have one or two HIV patients every year, instead of which, in a short time, I was following 100 people. And it turned out I'd stumbled onto a phenomenon of migration, you know, gay men leaving their hometowns, coming back years later because they were infected. And I wrote a scientific paper describing this migration. And, uh, you know, it was true not just of my small town, but all small towns, as I suspected it would be. But I felt that the language of science didn't begin to capture the heartache of the families or the tragic nature of the young men's voyage it was mostly young men those days. my own grief at witnessing this you know people my own age coming well before their time and that was the moment that I decided I want to tell the story and I had told myself that I would do it somehow I would either take a break from my tenured position in moonlight and try and write it or I would I would also apply to the Iowa Iowa Writers Workshop, which the criteria then was two short stories and really not much else. And I applied and they took me and I went. And so I think that was the moment I really was forced to take myself seriously as a writer because I cashed in my 401k, cashed in my tenure position and taken my wife and young kids all the way to Iowa on New Year's Eve. (laughs) Start in January. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Wait, was Lilacs one of the stories you submitted?
1: Lilacs was a, a short story that came out of the... Uh, oh, it came out of... Okay. Yeah.
0: Because that was the first piece. The first short story that was published in The New Yorker for you was Lilacs, right? But there's yes, already been... My Own Country had come out. Then you'd sort of... Because I think there are people who think that cutting for stone is the first time you'd ever written fiction. And you had just decided to switch gears. And I was like, well, actually, no. There's, there's a little bit that came before that. <laughs> You've been doing this
1: for a while. When I published Lilacs in the New Yorker, the editor at the time was sort of curious about this foreign physician writing this short story that is so dark and about HIV. And they asked me to pitch a nonfiction piece about HIV in the homeland. And I was very excited because, you know, here was my opening to write some big nonfiction piece for them. And I labored on the proposal and to make a long story short, they turned it down. For many reasons, because the editor was leaving, Tina Brown came on board, and I wound up doing other things for her, but not that. And so there I was with a nonfiction book. So, but for that, I think I would have kept writing fiction. That was my intention uh, to tell the Tennessee story through a novel, because I really believe novels are a way of telling the truth about something.
0: Yeah. Oh, I agree with you completely. I'm just very glad we got the other two books as well, because I also remember how we talked about them. I mean, I was in New York when my own country came out. And for some people, it was revelatory to hear that this was happening on the scale that it was happening in a tiny corner of Tennessee. There were people who just were walking around in the world thinking AIDS was something that happened in San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles. And that was it. And somehow only those three cities were seeing what we saw when we saw it. And I was like, no, diseases don't Work that way. They're gonna go through a population, and I remember being really excited when I read it because also at that point too, we didn't have a lot of. There was Randy Schultz in the band played on.
1: Yes, there was you. There was Paul Monet had. Oh, a- well, Paul
0: Monet did becoming a man right. So, but there wasn't a huge body of literature. I mean, certainly we're we're better about it now. And also with the tennis player, you were also kind of on the forefront of this whole idea of writing about addiction in a way that wasn't over the top. You just wrote about it in a very sort of of matter-of-fact, beautiful, painful way, but it wasn't like things were burning down or, you know, it wasn't overly dramatic, I suppose, is what I'm looking for. And so you sort of changed the conversations that we were having simply by wanting to tell a story.
1: Well, I mean, thank you for those kind words about both those books. I think uh, they were uh, important to me but I must confess, they were hard to write in the sense mm-hmm. that they were more self-revealing than I had thought. You know, <laughs> yeah. the great joy of nonfiction is you have the topic, it's inherently interesting, it really happens, so the reader wants to know. But, uh, you know, every time the camera lens would swing to me, as my editor would say, you can't just block the lens. You have right. to... Um, <laughs> I'm happy with what I did reveal, because it's not like I'm... Just announce this on in you know on public radio or something. It's more like the reader has earned the right to know these things if they pick up the book and read the book. But I found that process hard, and uh, fiction has a lot of challenges, especially in terms of keeping the reader's attention from page one when they know this is a made-up story. But you do have the, you do have the freedom to just really roam anywhere you want to in fiction and nonfiction. I found. Limiting in a in a positive way, you could know, do the story, but I don't think I could write nonfiction that where I wasn't sort of a character because, in many ways, it's my reaction to what I'm seeing that is the way I get to that piece. I think.
0: Well, I think anyone who's writing narrative nonfiction too, anything they put on the page is their POV. So, and sometimes that's great, and sometimes it's not, and sometimes you end up on the page. I just, I think with the kind of intimacy that you write with, it would be really hard for you to create the work that you'd created and stepping back further. I just, yeah, I don't see that quite.
1: Yeah, I would would struggle to write something about a topic that, you know, that I wasn't personally sort of affected by or a a character in, in some way. I mean, I mean, hats off to reporters who managed that, you know, parachute into a place and they just, tell you what it is and it's powerful but it's a struggle for me
0: and the publication of cutting for stone though if i remember correctly it was it was an anticipated book and i do remember people talking i mean this is 2009 so this was not yesterday forgive me if i sound a little foggy about it but it felt like it took a little build-up for that book to become the two-year bestseller you know almost two million copies worldwide kind of thing i felt like it was a tiny bit more of a slow burn. Now it's just, you know, an unstoppable force of nature, but it took us a minute to get there. And I'm wondering how you remember the publication of that. And also when you knew it had really taken off and it wasn't just a beautiful book that you had written.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. So I had a publishing house that was a hundred percent behind it, a great editor, Sonny Mehta, who wasn't my editor, but he he called me up one morning and said, you know, I've been sitting at my breakfast table reading this book, and I look up, and it's lunchtime. And so then I called my editor. I said, Sonny Mehta just called me. He said, he doesn't call anybody. And, you know, I suddenly had this feeling that they're going to get behind this book, and they did. But then in hardback, we were sort of stopped in our tracks by, uh, you know, I thought a, a very bad review in the New York Times, no other way to say it, ungracious review. And uh, it just, I think it just killed the momentum. And then in paperback with a different cover organically because of book clubs and it just began to build and build. And I mean, I didn't really have much anticipation that it was doing this. And I remember I was doing a reading. I went to my reading and I couldn't find parking and I was a little bit annoyed and I finally found a spot and I walked in and the place was packed and I realized it was for Cutting for Stone. And that was the moment that I realized that something had just happened. And, I, you know, gorgeous high after what had been a fairly disappointing start. And Cutting for Stone, too,
0: is going to be adapted for television or film. I can't remember. But it's it's coming to the screen. Someone has optioned it.
1: Yeah, they've all been optioned. And the only book that's been made into movies, the first one. But honestly, between you and me, I I don't pay too much attention because until it actually happens... I've lost uh, all understanding of the machinations of, you know, someone options it, but then they need money from someone else. And then they need this director and all these people are in shifting worlds. So it certainly doesn't happen as neatly as a writer signing a contract to write a book, you know?
0: No, but I think whatever we can do to bring audiences to the book, and sometimes it helps to have an adaptation because then people get all in their feelings and either the adaptation is great or it's terrible or, but people start talking and then people start picking up the book who may not have picked it up
1: before. <laughs> I love that. Don't get me wrong, I had enough to see it happen and maybe I was spoiled with the rapidity with which the first book was made into a movie, but uh, I think that you know what what makes it formidable at least initially then less so now was that the idea of having a protagonist who was not someone like Brad Pitt or not right, you know, uh, Harrison Ford if, you are, if your if protagonists are you know people of color, it's a little more challenging, and then if the whole thing is set in another land, it's even more challenging. So I'm really gratified to see that that's no longer true. That you know I see great filmmakers taking on tales all over the world, and wonderful films being made, you know, in every country you can think of. It's Just astonishing stuff. So I'm hopeful.
0: We're lucky. We're really lucky. But can we talk about some of your literary influences for a second? I know I mentioned that you'd gone to the Iowa Writers Workshop. So certainly you have opinions about books and writers. But let's talk about some of the writers who made Abraham Verghese who you are on the page.
1: Well, I, I think we find the right people to imitate, is the, is the best way I can say it. Okay. I think some <laughs> writing resonates for you, uh, some people's Confidence is something you try and borrow. So, for example, I, I got to know John Irving, and I I always admired, and I had loved Garp well before I met him. Years before I met him, and I just admired the command he had over the storyline, and you know how how many months and maybe years he spends getting that command before he embarks on writing. But in terms of the kind of writing that I sought to emulate, it was. My biggest influences, I think, were probably Gabriel Garcia Marquez, to some degree Dickens, and, you know, just storytellers like Dostoevsky. I'm very drawn to long, epic, multi-generational novels. I think that's because I love this sense uh, in a world where I'm always reminded that we're mortal and, you know, time is valuable. The only instrument I know that, you know, cheats time is a big novel, you pick it up, and suddenly you're in this world and you're living decades and three generations go by, and you finally get to the end, and it's Tuesday. and I, <laughs> I just love that feeling, and so I think my ambition was always to write you know substantial works that had to be as long as they could be. It's not that I want to always write epic three generational novels, but uh, just to make a case for for that experience, which I think you know people tend to shy away from, but I had a very gratifying comment from a reader who I'd never met before about this new book saying, I was just so caught up and I wanted to see how many pages were left. And there were a hundred pages left and I was disappointed, you know? So this person had got quite a ways through and they wanted it not not to end. Well, that's exactly what you want to, what you hope will happen. And you hope you can make that happen.
0: I also really appreciated the way you cut back and forth between different points of view. And especially when I sort of felt like the narrative was starting to ramp up a little bit and we would flip back and forth between Big Amachi and Digby and Digby's situation. And part of me wants to say poor Digby. I mean, Big Amachi has in some ways an easier time of things than Digby because she knows her community and knows what she wants. And Digby's Digby. I do like him as a character, but he's Digby. (laughs) And I feel like I can't say more than that without ruining it for someone else. Um, But Digby's boss is horrible. That that I am not spoiling, but he's horrible. He's just, he's terrible. And we needed him to be there, but he's terrible.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think that, um, you know, uh, I have a thesis that many of us go into medicine uh, to heal our wounds. You know, the wounds may not even be wounds we recognize, and you know, there's a quality that medicine lures you with and promises you it might be a complete illusion. It is an illusion that if you give your all to this, then you don't have to deal with whatever's you have to work on on yourself or the issues that you're carrying. And uh, um, so in a way, Digby has a bit of that. He's you know, he's trying to sort of heal his woundedness by becoming. Uh, position. And you know, nothing has changed. I still see that quite a bit. Um, and it's always interesting. There's nothing you can say. You have to wait for the moment of mm. revelation to come uh, to that person, as it did for me.
0: All of your characters have genuine arcs, though. Some have longer arcs than others, but everyone has an arc. You mentioned the whiteboard that's over your shoulder, <laughs> with all sorts of plotting and whatnot. As you're feeling your way through this book, as the writer, you're feeling your way through and, and understanding where the story is going. What was sort of the order of the cast? We know Big Amachi and her husband show up first, but then kind of who pops? I'm sort of dancing around the children a little bit because the children, I feel, give some stuff away. But I mean, was Digby next
1: or? Yeah, I think Digby, I began with Bigamachi and her husband somewhat organically, because 1900 was her time frame. And, um, you know, she would lead me to her children, the next generation, and then to the next generation. But Bigby came early on, and um, I had initially introduced him as an adult, and then I realized his childhood was important. His woundedness was very relevant to the way he was. And so it also, as you said, it gave some relief to the reader from the intensity of, the focus on Kerala to be suddenly in Glasgow, you know, like clearing your palate, and then to come back to Kerala then to go to Digby again. So I, I, I sort of enjoyed making those transitions. And, uh, but I think it evolved pretty organically. What, what took time was to see the connections that weren't always apparent, you know, they, and then once you see them very much like the novelist who plans everything ahead of time, now that I see them, then I sort of reinforced the connection. so I think eventually we, whether you plan your novel or you write your way through it, you all get to the same place. Uh, I just wish that it could be as efficient as the former process, you know. Uh, so I had an interesting experience. I'll, I'll share with you if I may that I recorded the audiobook for this book, which I auditioned to do because i I sensed that with all the foreign names and pronunciations, I had as good a chance as anybody to not, you know to do a, to a, better, to a better job than someone who never encountered virgin. And it was humbling. I had to learn how to really perform my book in a way that I you know, had always appreciated, but I, I had to do it now. But in the course of doing that over two and a half weeks, I began to see yet another level of connections that I wasn't even aware of. I certainly didn't intentionally put them on the page. And it just leaves me in some awe of the subconscious mind and what it's doing in the, in the background, you know, just like all the stuff it's pulling off and you think you have agency. Wow. You, you know, you have some agency. There are some deep forces working beyond that. You wrote the bulk of this book during lockdown, right? I wrote the important, you know, sort of as it came together, COVID was happening, which was really poignant for me because, uh, here you know, I was writing about illness and death in you know the nineteen hundreds and watching that unfold in our hospital and you know worldwide, and seeing a lot of parallels. I mean, it was interesting how you know we have come a long way in medicine, obviously, but when you're faced with mortal illness, when you're faced with loss, it's the same thing since antiquity, and you you fall back on the same things. you fall back on family, you fall back on your faith, you you Question your faith. It was just a astonishingly poignant to me that we've come a long way in medicine, and we haven't really come anywhere because you know we're we're still going to suffer some of these things, and uh, still find ourselves looking for the same kinds of uh, relief. And they don't come from medicine. They come, you know, from family, from love, from you know, uh, from the empathy that your community gives you the support that your relatives give you as they rally around, you know, that's, nothing's changed.
0: Would you consider yourself a romantic
1: In Do sort of a classic?
0: Romantic? No, in the classic sense of not, you know, not hallmarky kind of thing, but just in terms of a writer, it seems like you have quite a lot of faith in humanity and you're quite hopeful ultimately about our ability to move ourselves forward. it just, it seems to me that you are hopeful. And, and I really, I don't mean romantic in a, you know, a cutesy kind of way, but you have this deep love for people.
1: Yeah, I think that's not inaccurate. I always think that I'm an incurable romantic for medicine, you know, yeah. it's <laughs> a, a wonderful calling, a great adventure. And I suspect that's another way of saying that I'm an incurable romantic for This miracle of you know human existence and all the variety of people that are around us. I'm an optimist. I really think that you know, um, first of all, it doesn't pay to be otherwise. But secondly, I really do think that when things are bad, the pendulum, at least in my lifetime, has always seemed to gradually swing back. It it can take a long time. You might not live to see it, but I think the pendulum does swing back. So, and I, I like to find redemption in the characters. I like them to find. Their redemption. I like them to find atonement if they need it. No, I think that's, uh, I don't know if that's human nature or just my nature. I just, I gravitate to that.
0: As long as you keep putting it in books, we're okay. And speaking of, have you thought about what the next thing might be? I mean, you've always taken your time between books, even at the shortest pace. I think it was, what, four years?
1: (laughs) Yes, indeed.
0: Between the first two books. So it's not as if you're turning out a book a year, which You know, we're not asking you to do that, but have you started thinking about the next
1: thing? I've thought about it in terms of, you know, I think uh, perhaps the most important decision about it, which is I wrote my first novel about Ethiopia, The Land of My Birth, because I felt authority there. And the second one about Kerala, which is, you know, ethnically, that's my roots. But, you know, I've lived the longest time in America and I've had such varied experiences from Boston to Johnson City, Tennessee, El Paso, San Antonio, Iowa, and now for you know almost 15 years in California. So I'm pretty certain I'll set it here, and I, I'm pretty certain that it, the time period will probably be contemporary, something that I seem to have shied away from for the most part. And I really don't know more about it than that. I think I spend a lot of time just sitting, waiting for... You know, of the many, many ideas I have, which which ones will finally take uh, take root?
0: I have to say, I'm really possibly a little
1: too excited to know that you're thinking about setting it in the
0: States. I mean, yeah, I just, I would really like to see what you do with this place that we call home. It's a complicated place.
1: Yeah, home is a place. And also, you know, I'm I'm an American citizen and very yeah. proud of it. I'm not ever, far from being cynical about it, I escaped you know, uh, a country that was imploding in Ethiopia. Right, right. I've seen extremes of, you know, authoritarian rule all over the place. So this is, even with everything going on and the challenges right now to, you know, all kinds of challenges, I still feel blessed to be here. I think I didn't feel like, as an immigrant, I, didn't, I don't know that I felt that I had the authority to write a story set in America. In oh, heart. you and so now, do.
0: Now you I, so do.
1: I do. I do. <laughs> And I also want to not take over a decade. I mean, I'm not in a great hurry to produce a novel tomorrow, but I really feel like I'm doing myself a disservice to prolong something that much. And so uh, I am feeling the sense of let's get more efficient at this. Let's get quicker at this, you know.
0: Yeah, it also sounds like you came home. I know you've lived in lots of different places, but at the same time, America is big enough to hold us. America is big enough to be home. For people like you and I. So I just, I love the idea that you're finally coming home. Abraham Verghese, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Cutting for Stone obviously has been out. Go read that if you'd like to, but do not miss The Covenant of Water. It is gorgeous and you do not want to miss this book. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Hello
3: readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of great books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of The Covenant of Water. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy Madison. Hi, Madison.
2: Hello, I'm Madison joining you from my Barnes & Noble in Los Angeles.
3: So I'm going to go ahead and kick things off with a book that I love so very much, and that is The Water Dancer by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Oh, I love this book. Love this book. This was the fiction debut for the National Book Award winner, and it is a stunner. Coates takes readers on a journey from a Virginia plantation in the 1860s and traveling up north. And we follow this young boy, Hiram or High. He is the son of the plantation owner, and he has this gift for memory. So think like a perfect recall kind of scenario, except that he fails to recollect the one thing that he's trying so desperately to capture, which is the memory of his mother, who was sold off by his father when Hiram was nine years old. Many things happen to take High on this adventure away from the plantation and through the Deep South and just striving to get away and find his place in the world. But there is also this infusion of magical realism that I think just adds this filigree to the narrative I have not really seen that done by Coates so much with um, something that's just slightly supernatural, and he just weaves it so perfectly. I'm not surprised at all. It's a refreshing thing to see from such a prolific writer. I think ta Coates is just one of our most cherished writers living today, and I think Hiram's journey is just so harrowing and inspiring. And there is a reason that this book resurrected Oprah's Book Club. It is powerful. It is vital. And I want everybody to read this book. So please check out The Water Dancer by Ta Nehisi Coates. Madison, what do you have for
2: us? Yeah. So when I was thinking of books to recommend, I went to my fiction roots. It's where my love for reading started. And I chose The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane by Lisa C. And I chose this one because I feel like it's so, like, enriched of, like, certain, like, customs and cultures. I love a good cultural read, in my opinion. So this one, you have one of our main characters, Li Yan. She lives in a remote mountain village, and her, like, family, her community, they align their lives around, like, the seasons and the farming of tea. So they're very their own, like, units. They're very ingrained in their own like customs, their rituals, their beliefs. That's kind of what they live by. A stranger shows up at their village gate in a Jeep and it's the first time they've seen like an automobile. Like the first time any of the villagers have like seen a car. And it's kind of like this awakening kind of for our main character. She's one of the only educated girls in the village. You see her kind of begin to reject the norms of the community. She has a baby out of wedlock. And instead of killing her child, she decides to completely reject that idea. And she drops her daughter off at an orphanage. And then that kind of takes you to our next character, her daughter, Haley, um, who grew up with loving Adoptive parents in California. So it's a completely different culture. And you get to see those like comparisons. So you still follow Leon um, through her. She kind of she leaves her village. She goes, she gets an education. You see her in the business world. You see her in this like new world for her. You get to see her experience our world. And then you get to see her like longing to kind of reconnect with her daughter. And her daughter wants to learn where she comes from. And you kind of have, like, as you were saying, you have another one of those moments of, like, an author, like, beautifully, like, weaving two worlds together. And in the end, you kind of see how, like, their destinies kind of tie them back to, like, their roots and where they came from. I think it's just, like, a beautiful read. I would highly recommend it, uh, which is why I chose The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane by Lisa C.
3: Such a good book. Nice choice, as always. But that's all we have for today. Thanks so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester.
2: And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN Events Grove.
3: Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Bye.
2: Happy reading. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.